If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 1. That's page 448 in the chair Bibles there if you're using one of those. We're going to be in Psalm 1. For the month of August, Kyle and I will be preaching a short sermon series from the book of Psalms. You can see, um, oh, I think it's, it's gone now. But the title of the series is Worshiping God with Our Emotions. Um, what we hope to accomplish over the next month is to show how the book of Psalms helps us glorify God in the midst of all kinds of emotions. Do you ever feel overwhelmed by a particular emotion or set of emotions? I'm sure we all have at different times. Have you ever doubted your ability to maintain faith in God's promises? Or has the concept of joy seemed so far out of reach that you've wondered if you will ever experience it again? Hopefully, this sermon series will be beneficial to you. But why Psalms? First, it's because people identify with the emotion of the Psalms. People love the book of Psalms. It could be the most popular, most quoted book in all the Bible. I believe this is because no matter what situation you're going through, no matter what emotion you're experiencing, you can find yourself somewhere in the book of Psalms. So many people identify with the emotion of Psalms. Here are just a few examples of what I mean. What about fear? Well, Psalm 56, when I'm afraid... I put my trust in you. What about grief? My eye wastes away because of grief, Psalm 6. Loneliness, I am lonely and afflicted, Psalm 25, 16. Guilt, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, Psalm 25, 11. Shame, shame has covered my face, Psalm 44, 15. Love, I love you, O Lord, my strength, Psalm 18, 1. Impatience, anybody ever felt impatient? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Psalm 13. We could go on and on, but the point is that there is no human emotion that we cannot find in the Psalms. So we identify them, identify with them as we read them. So that's the first reason why Psalms. But the second reason is that the Psalms don't just just join us in our emotional experience. They actually help us connect our emotions with the truth of God's word. They guide us out from under the weight of our emotional experiences. They don't just leave us to wallow in our sorrow or guilt or shame. They help us, sometimes by pulling us out of those emotions into the very presence of God. I want us to be people who are not tossed and driven about by our emotions. My desire for Redeemer Church is that we would be people who are steadfast and immovable. Yes, of course, we have emotions. And yes, of course, those feelings and those desires are real and powerful, and they are a good gift from God. But without the truth of God's word coming in to check our emotions, we become flimsy, half-hearted, uncommitted people. 
We're driven and tossed around by our desires. So when the hard times come, and they will come, we have very little substance, very little ballast to hold on to, to keep us afloat. The book of Psalms, I believe, is meant to reinforce the ballast for our daily lives. So that's why we're going to be preaching through the book of Psalms, just a short sermon series, five, five weeks. What are the Psalms? Just real quick. Well, the book of Psalms, quite simply, is a collection of songs and poems used throughout the history of God's people for private and corporate worship. So the Psalms is a collection of songs and poems used throughout the history of God's people for private and corporate worship. These are songs that have been written hundreds, thousands of years ago, collected over the course of time by the Hebrew people, and they were used over and over in worship gatherings just like this, as they gathered in the temple, as they gathered in the tabernacle, as they gathered in synagogues. Uh, throughout the history of God's people, the Psalms has always been the songbook of God's people. Now, who wrote the Psalms? Um, a lot of people wrote the Psalms. Um, we're just going to name a few, just real quick. King David, right? These are the Psalms of David. If you look down um, in your Bibles, if you have it open to Psalm 1, just look down to Psalm chapter 3 real quick, the very first line, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Okay, so King David wrote a number of these Psalms. And a lot of times we get an introduction, some, some background information on where the Psalm came from. Sometimes we don't, but sometimes we do if it's from David. Uh, we have the Psalms of Asaph. These are Psalms 73 through 83. Asaph was a Levite musician who played a leading role in the music of worship during the time of David. So he was sort of, um, I guess, me in Old Testament times. Um, <laughs> Not that I'm comparing myself to the Levites, but, um, but the Levites were in charge of the temple service, and, and part of that was the music, right? So Asaph was a musician. He wrote Psalm 73 through 83. Uh, Psalms of the sons of Korah. These are, these are more Levites, okay? These are more um, of the, the Levitical priests who were in charge of the, the temple worship, the sons of Korah. They wrote Psalms 42 through 49, 84 through 88, okay? These are usually, these are labeled in Scripture of the sons of Korah. And we have the Songs of Ascents. These are Psalms 20 or 120 through 134. These are Psalms that were used primarily in temple worship and um, a lot of scholars think that they were actually sung as the Hebrew people made their way up the hill to the temple for worship. That's why they're called songs of ascents, okay? And we have a number of anonymous psalms. There are many psalms that are not identified with an author. We don't know who wrote them. We don't know where they came from. But they were gathered together by the Hebrew people throughout their history and added to these other collections to form what we know as Psalter, or the book of Psalms. So today, we're going to look at the very first psalm. This is one of my all-time favorite psalms, and my hope today is that we will see that the path of the righteous leads to joyfulness, fruitfulness, and blessedness. That's my goal, to see that the path of the righteous leads to joyfulness, fruitfulness, and blessedness. So let's read Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, 
nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. My hope today is that we'll see the path of the righteous leads to joyfulness, fruitfulness, and blessedness. Here in verse one, we have this opening phrase, blessed is the man. Now, don't get caught up in this word man here, okay? This is a generic term used in reference to mankind, okay? So if you're a woman, don't think this psalm doesn't apply to you. It does, okay? Because you're included in all of mankind, okay? That's not really um, popular these days to continue using the masculine version of man, but the Bible does it, so we will continue to do it. So when we say man, know that it means man and woman, But let's talk about this word blessed. This is a very common word in our Christian lingo. And that's really a good thing. It's a biblical word. We need to use it. It's used over 500 times in the Bible. But what does it mean? Well, in this passage, it literally means happy. Happy is the man. So there's an emotion, right? We're talking about worshiping God with our emotions. Happiness, that's an emotion, But our word happy is kind of a wimpy word, right? It doesn't mean much today other than I feel good because things are basically going my way. Our happiness is usually fleeting and temporary. It's usually based on our circumstances. But this word blessed is much deeper than simply being happy. Being blessed means that you are favored by God. That God has shown you love, approval, and has chosen to reward you in some way. Not because you've earned his reward and he's now obligated to give it, but he desires to bless you out of, your own, out of his own purpose of grace. This word bless is a very important word. So it's important for us to understand that God does not owe his blessings to anyone. There is nothing we can do to put God in debt to us. We cannot read our Bibles enough. We're going to talk about reading the Bible, meditating on God's Word. We can't read our Bibles enough or pray enough or discipline our bodies enough to earn God's blessing. He blesses his children the way any father blesses his child, not because they earn it, but because his love for them already exists and he wants to see his children happy. But at the same time, in this passage, we see God tells us there are two paths we can choose. One path will lead us to blessing, and the other path will lead to destruction. The path of the righteous or the path of the wicked. Now, let's look at these two paths. First, the blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not take steps in the direction of wickedness. 
We have all probably had these moments in our lives where we're faced with some kind of moral decision to either choose righteousness or wickedness. Am I going to pursue holiness or am I going to per- pursue something less than holiness? And pretty much every time we choose the way of the wicked, we begin with very small incremental steps. We may even know the truth about these two paths. We may know that what God's design is for us, but we still want to see just how close we can get to that particular sin. I won't go all the way. I'll just take a few steps down that path just to see what it's like. Let me just listen to the counsel of the wicked. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not in the path. I'm just listening to the counsel of the wicked. I'm just taking a few steps that direction. That's not the way of blessing. We see, second, that the, the way to be blessed is that you do not stand in the way of sinners. So there's a progression here. Do you see the progression? Following the path of the wicked begins with stepping out into their counsel and walking along with them, even just a little bit, incremental steps. But next, the wicked man stands in the path with the sinners. That means he has become comfortable around them. He's no longer questioning the path he is on. He is fully committed in his foolish decision. He is standing his ground. He has no intention of leaving. So what started as just small steps, hearing counsel, has now become standing in the way. Third, the blessed man does not sit in the seat of scoffers. This is the final stage of open rebellion. The wicked man actually sits down. He takes his seat in the assembly of those who scoff. He takes up mockery against anyone who does not join him. So we have this full picture of the path of wickedness, right? First, there is a decision to walk in the counsel of the wicked. Next, there is a settling in, an established intentional decision to remain on that path. And finally, the wicked man becomes so convinced of his folly, he actually cries out against those who are righteous. Now think about your, life, your own life for a moment. Do you find yourself somewhere on this path? Maybe you have taken or are about to take that first step. Maybe you are beginning to walk out in the path of folly, taking small, subtle steps towards sin. Maybe you've been there for a while. Maybe you've grown comfortable there. Let today be a wake-up call to shake you out of your comfort. Flee that path of destruction. Or maybe you're here and you've actually set yourself up as an enemy of God and his people. Scoffing, mocking the things of God, either openly with your mouth or inwardly in your heart. Have you grown bitter towards God or the church because of something that has happened to you? Do spiritual things sound so old and boring to you that where once they seem so important and exciting? Man, I've been there. What can we do? 
How can we find the blessing that Psalm 1 points us to? Well, the righteous man delights in the word of God. Read on. Look in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. So we have this contrast. The blessed man doesn't delight in wickedness or sinning or scoffing, but his delight is his joy, his happiness, right? His blessedness is in the law of the Lord. Do you want to delight? I mean, that's an emotion. Delight. Joy. Do you want delight? Do you want joy? Of course you do. We all do. In fact, I think everything we do in life is a means to getting delight. It's a means to getting joy. Every decision you make is made because you believe it will bring you more joy, more delight in the end than the alternative decision. Right? I mean, think about this. Nobody wants to wake up and go to work in the morning, but we all do most days, right? Now, why do we do that? Because we know the consequences of not doing it would be far worse than the momentary uncomfortableness of getting up and going, right? So the end result, we want what is best. We want that we believe that getting up and going to work will produce more joy, more happiness for us in the long run, right? We make every decision this way except perhaps in some sort of extreme circumstance, which none of us probably live in uh, that hypothetical world. Every decision we make, we make because we are pursuing joy, right? Of course you want delight. Here we have a promise from God that the way to delight is through meditating on the law of God meditating on the law of God. This word law simply means instruction or teaching. So it doesn't just mean that we meditate on the first five books of the Old Testament, because that's the law, right, the Torah. No, this is talking about uh, all of God's instruction, any and all of God's word. This word becomes even more important when we know a little more about the book of Psalms, how it was put together. Now, there are five books within the book of Psalms, okay? So if you read the book of Psalms from start to finish, you're going to see these breaks. You'll see this heading. It says um, book, oh, right here, book one, right here. There's book one. You get to chapter 42, you're going to see book two. You get to chapter 73, you're going to see book three, right? And book four and book five. And the, the common understanding in the Jewish tradition was that these five books of Psalms were put together. They were collected and they were, they were meant to actually um, coincide with the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So you have five books of law. And then here in the Psalms, you have five books of law instruction. It's God's instruction. So just as God's instruction in terms of legal and civil and moral requirements is in the law, here we have instruction in things like joy. We're instructed on, on a, in our emotions, how to love, how to worship, how to bring glory to God. 
This is where we find this kind of instruction in the Psalms. So this seems like the psalmist put this here, whoever collected this and put this together, he wants us, he's tipping us off to something. He's putting particular emphasis on the Psalms. He wants us to read the Psalms and meditate on them especially. This is God's word. But what about meditation? What does it mean to meditate on God's word? Well, the word meditate really means to moan or to mumble. And that's typically how people throughout church history have meditated. They take a passage and they just repeat it to themselves all day. They just mumble it. They moan it or mumble. And then that's considered meditation. But meditation, we know, is more than simply mumbling words. Meditation is primarily something we do with our minds. Because, see, it's possible to mumble something to ourselves without, without ever really understanding it, right? Words are just sounds if we don't understand what they mean. So meditation must also involve our minds. It means that we think deeply about God's Word. And one of my favorite analogies for meditation, I use this all the time, I've probably preached this before, is a cow chewing cud. It's a disgusting illustration, but that's why it works. It sticks with me. Um, If you know anything about cows, they have several stomachs, right? Like four, I believe. Um, And so a cow, typically what it does is it's in the pasture, it grabs some grass and mud and all kinds of other things, and begins to chew it, right? This is called cud. He just works it up into this ball of mush in its mouth. It's just chewing. This is why you see, you drive by a pastor with cows, and you just see them, they're just, they're just going to town on this cud, right? You should ask Silas to do it. Silas says it's a great cow impression, chewing cud. It's really good. Um, so they're just chewing. They're just going to town, right? And then pretty soon, once they've gotten all the nutrients and nourishment that they want out of that cud, they swallow it. It goes into stomach one, right? Well, later on in the day, an hour later, two hours later, whatever, brings it back up keeps chewing, right? Even adds a little bit more to it. Just keeps working that cud again and again, getting all the nourishment, getting everything it can out of that, swallows it again, stomach number two. Later on, brings it back up, chewing again. Again, the same process over and over and over through every stomach until it finally gets expelled, right? This is the best analogy I know of what meditation is. This is what it means to meditate on God's word, We run God's word through our minds, slowing down to think deeply about each word. We're chewing on it. We're getting every bit of nourishment we can out of it. We we pray it. We repeat it with our mouths. We emphasize each word. We, We look up words to find out what they mean. We do study to figure out Uh, what the the meaning of the passage is, if that's necessary. But the point is we are using our minds and sometimes our mouths as well to meditate on God's word so that we, it, it takes root in our hearts. We do this so that God's word would dwell in us richly, providing the spiritual nourishment our hearts are longing for. Now, there are many different methods of meditation. I don't have time to go through that, but later today I'm going to put a couple links 
up on our blog that will give you some more practical ideas of how to meditate on Scripture, if that's something that you struggle with or you just want to learn more about. Don Whitney has written a lot about um, meditating on God's Word, has some really good practical advice. But through this process of meditation, our minds are turned away from sinful desires and worldly distractions, and we are brought into communion with God. And when that is the source of our greatest delight, all other delights find their proper place. We have a promise here in Scripture. The blessed man is the man who delights in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on his word day and night. If you want, you want to be happy, I know that's a flimsy word, but let's just take it at face value, happy. You want to be happy? Meditate on God's word. If you want to delight, if you want a life full of joy, contentment, meditate on God's word. Meditating on God's word brings us into ultimate supreme delight in God. And in that, all of the other things that we delight in are diminished and they find their proper place in that delight in God. That's important because what I'm not saying here is that there is only one thing we can delight in, right? That's not what I'm saying. That's not what the Bible is saying. I'm not saying that you can only delight in the Word of God, therefore any other thing we might enjoy is sinful and should be thrown out because we're only allowed to delight in, in God through the meditation of His Word. That's not what I'm saying. You will delight in many things in your life. Food, sex, friendships, funny jokes, sports, any number of things. We delight in these things. It's impossible to go through life without delighting in the things of this world. But we can all agree that those delights do not and cannot produce the kind of ultimate, lasting joy that we are longing for. No amount of delighting in food or physical pleasure or entertainment will be able to compare with the immeasurable joy we find in communion with God. If you have experienced this, then you know it to be true. Let me give just a small personal example of how this works in my life, how this worked this week. My alarm goes off about 5.45 every morning. I'm out of bed a little after 6, after hitting the snooze a couple times, I start my morning routine, right? At some point in the morning, I head downstairs to the basement. It's cold. Um, It's really uncomfortable, but it helps wake me up. I've got a little study area down there. I spend time in the Word and prayer. Now, this this week, one of the days, I think it was Thursday, my passage to read and meditate was Psalm 24. So I opened my Bible to Psalm 24. I read these words. The earth is the Lord's, And the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And I read through the rest of Psalm 24. I get to the end and I think, I have no idea what I just read. So I have to go back to the top and I read it again. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And I get to the bottom, and I realize I only, I only understood about half of what I read. My mind is in a hundred different places, right? So about the fourth or fifth time that I read through Psalm 24, I'm finally beginning to comprehend, okay, 
I can actually make it through this passage without being distracted. This is the point of the passage. And so, again, I start over. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And I begin to think, wait a minute. How big does God have to be if the earth belongs to him? This is a big God, right? And if the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, that means I belong to God. And that means my boss at work belongs to God. That means everything that I do today belongs to him. And you can see how my mind begins to be shaped by this psalm, right? As I meditate on what it means for the earth to, be, to belong to the Lord, my heart is changed. It's softened. The distractions of the day are pushed away, and my, my, the thoughts and intentions of my heart are revealed, and they're being shaped by the meditation of God's word. All other delights find their proper place. All other thoughts and joys and distractions find their proper place when we are delighting in God above all. And I would argue that all other smaller delights actually become even more delightful when we are delighting in God above all. Psalm 63, verses 5 and 6 says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you on, upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. So what will you do with this promise this week? You were made to delight in God. Go to his word today and see if he is faithful to satisfy your soul. Now, I don't know if you caught what I said, but uh, I said all other delights find their proper place in our lives when we are delighting most of all in God. Now think about what your life would look like if all other delights found their proper place under and in your happiness in God. What if you delighted in God's word more than food? What if you delighted in God's word more than your kids? What if you delighted in God's word more than money or success or perceived security? What do you think your life would produce? Psalm 1 tells us that those who delight in the law of the Lord are like trees planted by streams of water. Look in verse 3. He is like a tree Planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. So the righteous man bears fruit that lasts. The righteous man bears fruit that lasts. When we find our greatest delight, our highest joy in communion with God, we are like trees that have planted ourselves right next to God's life-giving stream. Our roots work themselves out into the water day and night and day and night. The, streams, the stream runs next to us and we are constantly nourished with his presence. 
This is why Jesus said that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The quality and quantity of the fruit of your life is directly tied to the source of your nourishment. Now, what kind of fruit is being talked about here? What kind of fruit does the righteous man produce? Well, if the fruit of the wicked is sin and scoffing, then the fruit of the righteous must be the fruit of holiness and peace and all other accompanying graces. The Apostle Paul calls this, we know, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is the fruit of the righteous man, the man who is happy in God. But we don't just bear fruit. Look what it says. We bear fruit in its season. There will be seasons of various fruit. This was an encouragement to me as I meditated on this this week. God is so sovereign, and he loves his children so much that he is faithful to give them fruit that they need in whatever season of life they are in. What season of life are you in? What struggle has been marking your life? What particular emotion has been um, just played out in your mind and in your actions this week? Are you angry with other people? Maybe even angry at God? Well, God will be faithful to give you the love that you need in that season, the fruit of love. Are you fearful of the future? Are you confused about what God is leading you to do? Well, God promises to give you the fruit of patience and faithfulness in that season. Are you a stay-at-home mom and you feel overwhelmed with busyness, sickness, toil, and a lack of compassion for your own children? Well, take heart, because God is with you. He has a plan for you to bear the fruit of kindness, gentleness, and self-control. Just plant yourself in his word until your heart is glad in him. So God gives us the fruit in the very season that we need it the most. The amazing thing about the fruit of the righteous is that our leaves won't wither and all that we do, we will prosper. You see, the fruit of the righteous lasts. The righteous fruit of your life will far outlive you. It will prosper. That means it will continue to increase and abound more and more. It will succeed. This is because God is faithful to complete what he starts. He will use the righteous fruit of your life to accomplish his good purposes. I know it seems like our efforts in righteousness are going nowhere at times. Do I really have to um, continue to show kindness to this person who has hurt me so much? Do I really need to fight for joy when right now I feel so angry It's it's so much easier to complain and mope and feel sorry for myself or retreat and isolate myself. Do I really need to spend time with people when all I want to do is disappear? But here we have the promise that when we bear fruit for righteousness, it will last. It will prosper. It will succeed. Even if we don't ever see the effects of it, we can bank on God's promise that our works of righteousness 
The fruit of righteousness will accomplish his good purposes. Do you want to bear fruit that lasts? Do you want to leave a legacy of righteousness? Do you want your children to one day rise up and call you blessed? Do you want to be known for your supreme commitment to knowing and following Christ? Are you tired of racing from every desire to the next, leaving each one of them unfulfilled? Then plant yourself next to the life-giving stream of communion with God. Let his word satisfy your soul. Let his word stabilize your desires and see what kind of fruit he might be pleased to produce in you. And take comfort because we know that in the end, the righteous man will stand in the presence of God. The righteous man will stand in the presence of God. Look at verse five. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Just like every person is either on the path of the wicked or on the path of the righteous, so they will end up included in the congregation of the righteous or under God's judgment. First, the wicked will face, will face God's just wrath. Sometimes we see the beginning of God's judgment displayed on the wicked in our own lives. We see this when those who are on the path of wickedness are exposed and brought to some kind of earthly justice. The clearest example of this is when criminals are caught and prosecuted. Our court systems are meant to be microcosms of God's final judgment. There is a sense of satisfaction we get when we hear of a heinous crime committed and the person is caught, his deeds are exposed, he is brought to trial, convicted, and he receives his sentence from the judge. We've been seeing a good example of this, at least I hope, in the recent exposure of Planned Parenthood over the past couple weeks. Of course, we've known for decades what was going on in abortion clinics, but it seems that perhaps a portion of earthly judgment is in store for them, perhaps, But any earthly judgment, when rightly administered, will not compare to the judgment the wicked will meet when they stand before God on the last day. You see, what makes God's judgment more severe is that not only will the wicked be judged according to what they have done and what can be proven in a court of law, they will be judged according to God's knowledge. The Bible is clear that God judges the heart. They will be judged um, according to the thoughts and intentions of their hearts. You see, for every outward act of sin, there have been 10,000, 10 million sinful thoughts, sinful inclinations, and sinful desires that have come before it. No one wakes up one day and simply decides to start killing children inside their mother's womb. The Lord knows the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and his judgment is never misinformed. His knowledge is a perfect knowledge, and his standard of righteousness is perfection. And Because of God's holy wrath, the wicked will be separated out from the righteous. They will not be able to stand in the presence of God, in the assembly of God's people. Instead, they will perish. 
whatever they have worked for or sought to build in this life will be undone forever. Even the good things they sought to accomplish will be counted as wickedness. And their influence, their way will be brought to nothing. They will face an eternity suffering under the anger and punishment of God. But notice what is said about the way of the righteous in this passage. Verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. What does that mean? Does that mean that God is simply aware of the way of the righteous? No. This word know here means a whole lot more than just to be informed about something. It means that God is for it. He approves of it. He even delights in the way of the righteous. God knows the way of the righteous the same way that God knows his people throughout the entire Bible. He loves them, he guards them, and he designs all things for their good. God knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, I'm sure most of us here today are experiencing a dilemma. This is a a dilemma I ran into when I prepared this message. You've probably felt a tension in this passage from the beginning. Of course, we all want to be identified with the righteous man, right? (laughs) Yeah, I want blessing. I want happiness. I I want to be on the path of righteousness. We want the blessed life. We want God's favor and protection and love to rest on us. But when we're honest with ourselves... Perhaps many of us find ourselves all too often on the path of wickedness. Because after all, I just said that God knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, right? So if that's true, what hope is there that I would be counted among God's righteous? My heart is full of all kinds of idolatry selfishness. Well, if that's you today, and I know it's me, then I want to give us two possible solutions. First, it's possible that God's blessing does not rest on you yet. Maybe you are still on the path of wickedness, and you've never realized it until now. If so, let me encourage you with some good news from the book of Romans, chapter 4. See, the book of Romans addresses these same issues, the issues of blessing and righteousness and wickedness. How do we put these things together? The apostle Paul in Romans 4 writes, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will will not count his sin. So wait a minute. Paul says there's a blessing. You you can be blessed. You can be the blessed man. And the man who is blessed is the one whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So there's a way for us to be blessed even though we're on the path of wickedness. My sin can be covered So Paul is talking about being blessed just like us. We have our sins forgiven. We can not have them counted against us. But how can that be? What is Paul talking about? 
A little farther down in Romans 4, Paul mentions faith. Faith in what? Faith in Christ. He talks about Abraham and how Abraham received the blessing of the promise of God through faith in Christ. This means that God proclaimed the gospel in advance to Abraham. Abraham believed the gospel, had faith in God's promise to send the Messiah. And because of this faith, by the grace of God, he was counted as righteous. Now, that's great for Abraham, right? But what about us? What good does that do us? In Romans 4, verse 23, we have these words. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So here we have a key. We put the Old Testament promise with the New Testament fulfillment, and we see that there is hope for sinners like us. We can be happy and blessed. We can be counted as righteous and rescued out of the path of the wicked and planted down by the streams of God's ever-flowing grace. And it's made possible not because we stand before God and say, look, Lord, I've meditated on your word. I've resisted the way of the wicked. No, it's made possible because of, it's not made possible because of our righteousness, but because we trust in the one who was perfectly righteous for us. The righteousness of Christ is counted to us by faith. Do you have it? What are you trusting in today? Are you just going to go home and try to will yourself out of the path of wickedness? It won't work. You're going to fail. And when you do it, it will only increase your guilt before a holy God. The hope for you today is not to do better. The hope is to run to Jesus Plead to God for mercy. Turn from your sins and trust in Christ for forgiveness. He is ready and willing to bless you. Or maybe, this is the second answer, maybe you're here and you're a child of God. But maybe you've been struggling to remain on the path of righteousness. The path of the wicked seems so enticing so often. Maybe you aren't bearing the fruit of righteousness because you've been neglecting God's word the source of your nourishment. But today, the answer for you starts in the same place, the good news of Jesus Christ. Meditate today on his body and his blood shed for you. You did not deserve that. His his grace toward you abounds. His eyes are set upon you. He is waiting to bless you. So today, as we observe the Lord's Supper, May we all behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and receive his blessing. Let's pray.